Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ben Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to Mind. I'm here with Alex Santiago. Alec, why don't you tell everybody why I wanted to talk to you? Well, I hope that it is in order to have a big conversation around a lot of big topics and to kind of start exploring some of the, the experiences I've had, maybe some of the directions that I'm going, and uh, get your take on them. Totally. That's exactly why. So why don't you kick it off? Cool. Well, I will introduce myself a bit uh, as I stand currently. So I am coming up in my fifth year of my PhD program, and I study molecular biology. So I deal with some of the very, very, very precursor stuff that happens in cells that ends up leading to neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And in addition to that, I've also co-founded the uh, biotechnology company Van Heron Labs. And I recently authored a small book about emotional awareness. That is so awesome. So let's talk about Alzheimer's. Um, that runs in my family. Hmm. Um, so tell me about it. What is it, first of all, for the... For the folks that don't know about it, yeah, sure. So, so Alzheimer's in so all these neurodegenerative disorders have a really common thread in such that the proteins in the cells they end up taking on shapes that they really shouldn't, and when they take on these shapes, they're more likely to kind of stick together, and they form. You may have heard of like some plaques that they find in the brain. Um, so there's several different forms of plaques that come from several different forms of proteins, and that's how we distinguish these diseases. But um, the scary thing is that there are quite a few reasons why these plaques may start to form, some of them being genetic and some of them being from external environmental factors, some of them lifestyle factors. And so we're really just coming up on some of the research that's going to tell us what we can actually do to start battling it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what are what are some of the environmental and uh, lifestyle factors? So, super interestingly, um, a lot of the environmental factors are going to be native processes that happen in the cell. So, at one point in time or another, as we take in biology classes, we've learned about like the mitochondria and how that's where the energy is produced. And um, what's actually happening is we're seeing ATP being produced. But in the ATP production, there is a stage where we actually get some offput, some byproduct of this process. And we refer to these as reactive oxygen species. Um, and antioxidants were a really big thing for a while. And what antioxidants do is actually kind of counter these reactive oxygen species. So these reactive oxygen species, they kind of float around and they stick to things. And when they stick to things, they mess up their shapes. And it's actually interesting how much shape plays a role in like almost every part of your cellular health. And mm -hmm. so as these normal processes accumulate, as your body just makes ATP as it does, um, these ROS, these reactive oxygen species, will build up and will start to affect proteins and will start to affect some of the, the machinery that are within your cells and kind of break them down. So that's a big portion of it. And that's just a normal uh, human process. But these reactive oxygen species are also coming from things like pollution, um, 
low, low cardio health. Um, we've seen stress actually pre be pretty indicative. Uh, diet is actually coming into play a lot more. So a lot of the choices that you make day to day are having these teeny tiny impacts that'll affect things way down the line once these uh, misformed proteins start to accumulate. What about, um, so I remember they used to talk about how Alzheimer's was caused by cooking in aluminum. Hmm. Is that, is that true or not? Or what's the research on that? I don't know about that specifically, but I imagine that when you do, when, when you heat anything, really, you're exciting whatever uh, it's, com it's composed of. And when you do that, sometimes it, the, the composition shakes hard enough to release things. And occasionally, I think that those could be things that in a similar fashion, end up sticking to a part of your body. So you're just accumulating these things that were on the aluminum, maybe, and maybe they're having some harmful mm -hmm. effects. But I don't know any specifics. But if I had to guess, I would think it was something like that. Right. So when we talk about uh, lifestyle factors, um, what are some lifestyle factors of Alzheimer's? That, that could lead to it? Exactly. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, you're fine. No worries at all. Um, really? I mean, the, the, it's the things that get beaten to death over and over again. Um, reducing your stress levels is actually pretty fairly important um, because as you build up and you mount these high cortisol levels, it has implications all throughout your body and you end up producing a lot more of these uh, these ROS. And this is just one reason, but it's the reason that I'm most familiar with. There are also genetic reasons and mutations that, that uh, are factors. But the things that most people can do are to... Um, to eat better foods that aren't going to have um, maybe more harmful byproducts that come with digesting these foods. Um, things that are unnatural, like preservatives, have been lightly linked to, to some downstream processes. And interestingly, one of my favorite things in biology that's coming out recently is the link between your gut health and the brain. And it turns out that, and this is just a really cool fact, the 90% of the serotonin in the brain actually comes from your stomach. And so what's happening oh. is that the bacteria that are in your gut are sort of working this feedback loop where when they get what they want, they'll send this reward chemical in a sense. And this is a very, very uh, humanized way to think about it. it. There's no thought process going on in these bacteria, I'm pretty sure. But um, there's this weird feedback loop between how well you treat your gut and how well the bacteria in your gut end up in turn treating you. So making healthy choices as far as your diet, this actually has huge implications towards how good you feel and also um, some of the more destructive teeny tiny little components they may lead downstream to uh, neurogenic diseases. Wow, yeah, um, that makes sense. Um, there was a thing about I think there was a Native American, I don't know, proverb or thought process or whatever that actually, if I remember right, some of the, like your brain and your gut were like linked somehow. Like there was like a direct link or, you know, not being Native American myself, I don't know the whole, uh, the whole story there, but I do remember hearing that a lot. 
That's super interesting. I mean, now they know that there's a nerve called your vagus nerve, which actually travels along the distance between your gut and your brain. And that's where a lot of this distribution between the two happens. And so, you know, I imagine that they just kind of cause and effect started to see some things about what they were putting in themselves and how that ended up affecting their bodies. But to make that connection, you know, years before science concretely found it is crazy impressive. No, it is totally. Um, and I didn't think I would remember that. I didn't wake up today thinking I would remember that either, but here we go. Um, brain. <laughs> so, Hey, um, so this, I guess the stereotypical Alzheimer's patient is older. Um, mm-hmm. but yet, I mean, you also have early onset Alzheimer's and early onset dementia. And that's actually a question so what's the difference? But okay, is there a difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Number one, um. I don't know. That would be more of the clinical side than I would have any um, sort of comfort talking about. But if I had to take a guess from my perspective on what defines something like an early onset versus like a late onset, and I'm just I'm I'm like the boring side of biology. I do like the very very basic precursor stuff before it starts to affect people really. But there okay. are a lot of genetic mutations that um, can affect a lot of the machinery in the cell. So within your cell, like just specifically, there's a group of proteins called chaperones. And chaperones kind of act like hallway monitors and janitors in such that they kind of keep an eye on everybody else and they will take out the trash and they will make sure everybody you know, forms their, their proper shape as they're uh, being born. These proteins are being born. And um, if you have a mutation in that, and maybe they lose some of their function, then somebody who is making all the right choices still may be just inherently disposed towards something like this accumulation of of misfolded protein. And it's super, super complex when you start to get into the nitty gritty because, you know, one, one mutation can have just a network effect of things that it touches on and different implications within the cell for better or worse. Occasionally there are some that make it better for the most time it's worse though. But uh, yeah, it's super, super interesting. So, um, yeah. Okay. So what, um, so you said you deal with Alzheimer's and other type of research. What are some of the other research you deal with? So I work on the basic, basic, one of those chaperone proteins that I mentioned, actually, I work on what happens when it is uh, oxidized. So just for layman's terms, like I'm going to just explain it the way that I would explain it to my grandmother, the way that I have explained it to my grandmother is like the the protein that I study is like one of the most important uh, hall monitor types, the chaperone. And occasionally you'll start to see this uh, reactive oxygen species or maybe some sort of exogenous chemical, some some toxic chemical. It'll get into the cell and then it'll kind of just stick on. It'll stick on to this chaperone protein and actually disrupt the shape just enough so that it can't work anymore. And there is this mm-hmm. entire landslide of effects that happens that, that are affecting pretty much every compartment within the cell. And um, I kind of explore what's happening on a molecular level. So like, what is the protein itself unable to do? And effectively, that is take ATP 
and break it because when you break bonds, you release energy and make it ADP in case that brings back any sort of old biology. And what we find is that um, whenever you have these kind of exposures that are negative, whether it's due to uh, cellular processes, intrinsic cellular processes, or some external pollution, that just this one critical factor of not being able to recognize the ATP that gives it energy or to break that ATP bond um, has disastrous effects for the cell. So that's that's my project in a nutshell. And then later down the line on the clinical side um, is when the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and Huntington stuff comes into play. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. No, you're you know. fine. I just didn't want to get you know, say something that was totally wrong. Right. No, I get it. I get it. Um, how has your research evolved through time? Oh, my goodness. Now we're going to get into trials and tribulations of being a PhD student. Um, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, I'd love to. This is one of my favorite topics uh, to talk about with people around here. So when I was a senior in high school, I effectively had no science background enough enough uh, that I was taking a forensics class, which is super interesting. And it got a lot of concepts across, but it gave me no foundational science background to get into college with. And when I got into college, um, I actually didn't gravitate towards science at all. That came a little later, but um, I had a steep learning curve. And one of the things that I wasn't aware of is that you needed to really have some on-hand lab research in order to make your case stronger to get into a PhD program. And so that ended up setting me back about a year. And so when I got here, I still had a very, very, very underdeveloped concept of the scientific method. So when I got here, I was just, my experiments were proving nothing, essentially. Yeah, even something as simple as note-taking was disastrous. In my case, my critical thinking skills, my, uh, my research ability, they were all pretty terrible. And being a PhD student itself is pretty hard um, because 90% of the things that most people do in a lab end up in failing. And uh, constantly battling that imposter syndrome is hard enough by itself. <laughs> and then when it's backed up by the fact that I had a pretty good idea that I actually just wasn't that good at science, which I come to realize that I just, I frankly was not because I didn't have the background. Um, it, to put it nicely, it offered a lot of growth opportunities. So it's really wild. Sometimes I'll be talking to my boss now and I'll feel like my scientific lens has changed a lot. And um, looking back, like one of the toughest things that PhD students go through is this, um, this uncertainty in your own skills that wants to make you sort of overproduce and kind of overcompensate for your lack of unsurety in your field. And in doing so, you jump 10 steps too far and you have to jump five ste steps back because you failed quite a bit. And um, now seeing that, it's so identifiable that I've gone through the exact same pattern that I've read about online, that I've heard from my friends that are, that are lectured to us in some of the... Um, the school lectures that warn us of exactly this thing. And you never think it's going to be you until you do it. But there are so many pitfalls that come with the learning how to learn of a PhD program that you can almost watch yourself grow as a, 
as a conceptual scientist. So even regardless of what you study, you just learn how to engage with the scientific process in a way that's just fundamentally stronger. And so now looking back, um, it's really, uh, I, I'm, I'm proud of myself in a way that I didn't expect, I guess. Yeah. I find, I mean, first of all, I, I, I've talked with a lot of people on my podcast, a lot of experts, a lot of just also regular people. And I, I, I consider you an expert, believe it or not. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I find, and not just in my podcast, but all through interviewing people and just knowing folks and being human, um, imposter syndrome is really common for a whole lot of folks. I mean, um, and I'm sure that other generations had it, but I don't know that it was named mm. that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what it is that makes it so easy to feel lost in your field. Because in any given field, you probably know so much more about it than most of the general population. Why do you think it's so easy to not have a metric of success for yourself that's practical like that, even though you should, you feel pretty confident in whatever you do? Well, I mean, okay, like you take, for example, the somebody who's an expert and say, history or let's be more specific the roman empire or something like that i mean if you have competent professionals and whatever that can't even draw the roman empire on a map or color it in or whatever and and you've also got you know middle schoolers right but so mm -hmm. here you are and you're thinking about pollen counts or you're thinking about crop yields before and after volcanic eruptions on on the Italian peninsula. And that's how far you are into the weeds. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of one of these weird paradoxes where the more you know, the less you know. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the more the more you know, the the more questions you have. Right? Yeah. And once you get further and further into any box, you forget what it's like to stand outside of the box, too. And all you can see is the depths that it keeps yeah. going in, and you forget, you know, every knowledge that you've accumulated already. One of my one of my friends I went to college with when we were studying uh, in-depth history, very, very tiny fragments of time, but super in-depth. He had a test he liked to call the, the, the dad test, right? And, and what he would do is he would tell his dad or he'd tell his like his friends or something, you know, because he was from like he was the only person in his friend group from high school that had gone to college. And here he was like getting, a, I think, either a Ph.D. or a master's. I don't remember. But he, he was saying, I'll just go talk to, you know, so and so over at the mechanic shop and I'll just, you know tell him what I'm thinking on and whatever he thinks about it, that's a gauge, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a real world testing scenario yeah. of your own thoughts. Because as soon as you said, well, Alzheimer's, you know, I, 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 I had biology in high school, but mm. my last science class was God, probably 20 something years ago at this point. 
right? Um, but as soon as you said Alzheimer's, I was like, that's in my family. Of course I want to talk to him. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, um, but, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, one thing I do want to really touch on is imposter syndrome. The, the way that I've found to battle it is really to have multiple sources of self-esteem income, you know, multiple different metrics of evaluating yourself. And I mean, I only have the lens of like a PhD student, but I know that the people who just do the one thing uh, kind of bog down their identity in that one thing. And so, you know, with so many people facing imposter syndrome in whatever situation they may find themselves in, if that's your only one metric, to evaluate how uh, successful you are or how effective you are in the world, then chances are, you know, you're probably going to have a pretty low evaluation. So doing more than one thing in order to give yourself experience or a better sense of just self in general, I personally think is pretty critically important for not falling down a rabbit hole of, you know, self-doubt. Right. So you're saying like be good at hobbies and be, be good at cooking, <laughs> like be good at multiple things or what do you, what, what exactly do you mean? I guess just um, spend your time exploring multiple different things. So have other sources of, of activity that bring you any sort of choice. So yeah, a, a hobby is a phenomenal way to do it. Personally, I spent a lot of my time during uh, my PhD program building like entrepreneurship skills and establishing all these side projects. Um, but I did that because I needed to kind of get out of lab and just get away from that, that failure and that self doubt and go into something where I could be more of a, a learner without all the pressure because the pressure of a hobby isn't so bad because you're doing it because you enjoy it regardless of success in the beginning, at least, cause you know, there's a learning curve, but, um, it doesn't define you in the same kind of way where if you fail at it, then you are quote unquote, a failure in whatever you kind of chose to do. So you said in, in your, I guess, for lack of a better word, though, I don't, there needs to be a better English word for this, but in your so-called pitch to, to me, you said you were an entrepreneur. Um, or was that right? Exactly. Yeah, I like to think of myself as one, I suppose. Yeah. So do you want to talk about your, your company or your Yeah, sure. Um I've I've always kind of been an entrepreneur since I was uh really it started in college. And I think that it honestly just stems from my you know, my abject abject uh disgust of you know working under other people. I just do not like operating on other people's timelines. And so I really, really like the freedom that comes with working for myself. So when we were in college, we were like thinking of starting coffee shops and all these kind of things that college kids do um, when they want to start businesses. And then when I got to uh, graduate school, I started to get a little bit more serious about it and looked for external things that I could, that I could found myself. So I started uh, a blog called Clutch City Science that I ran. I started my own podcast that I think is still up on Spotify. I hosted a couple different science interview things, but my company um, was actually born out of 
this nonprofit that I used to be the executive director of for a short time. And prior to that, I was project manager for quite a few different programs. But what we did is we actually tried to establish entrepreneurship in a general sense in the Houston metro area. And so within Houston, we have what's called the Texas Medical Center, which is the largest medical center in the world. And that's really cool because we have a lot of people that come here to study. So they'll study um, like bioengineering or they'll be MDs or JDs or PhDs, what have you. And there is a pretty big lack of hands-on experience for all of these students. So here, there's a program called InVenture that was founded in 2012, not by me, but um, they really sought to give hands-on experience in starting a company, in the knowledge that it takes to do that, and then actually getting some companies off the ground and getting experience with uh, um, like actually working with companies in a practical sense, so sort of an internship and with education just in general. And now it's grown to be like a six-figure income, uh, gen- profit-generating, huge uh, program for all of the people who are training here to be able to get some entrepreneurship experience. So mm-hmm. I started doing that. And then one of my friends who I had gone to college with um, came over to start a company. And it was a fantastic idea. And I was executive director at that time. But we were running an accelerator program and an accelerator is just a program to help people with ideas turn them into like pre-companies. Um, what, uh, what, what's a pre-company? Kind of just like getting the framework. So the wire framing of a company right before you start to generate revenue or take on money. Um, you're just kind of building out the concept so it's more feasible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like what would the actual profit model actually be kind of thing? Yeah, like that. Okay. And where are you sourcing your stuff and intelligent property stuff? And um, yeah, so she yeah. came and she wanted to start this company, and nobody liked her idea that was in our cohort. And uh, I was so excited about it that I actually resigned my position um, in order to kind of help her out. And now we've started Van Heeren Labs, and uh, we're kind of we we started actually in my living room where we set up a little lab. And we're rolling now. We're we're taking on clients and stuff and loving it. What? Okay. So, what does Van Heeren Labs do? Ooh, so we, uh, in a nutshell, we take any cells that are growing, and try to help them grow better. And so this goes all the way back to the oh. metabolism stuff that we talked about, um, yeah. because effectively when when cells are intaking things, so like glycolysis, for example, if you remember like the wheel that goes along in metabolism, there's a lot of transformation steps. So like one thing turns into another thing and goes around in the circle. That takes a lot of energy. And so what we can do is actually kind of use bioinformatic tools to listen to the cells as they tell us exactly what they need from the get-go. And we're able to reduce some of those transformation steps so the cell doesn't have to waste energy in transforming, and it can better divert it to uh, to growth or to producing whatever you want them to produce. And so that's yeah. kind of what we do is help companies do that. What are, what are some of the practical applications of that? I mean, I can think of some right now, but I'm, I'm not the guy that does that. So why don't you tell me? 
Sure. The easiest go-to is insulin. So that's one that would have a major impact. And that's actually made now mostly by cells. So cells that you uh, you introduce some, some GMA into, and then they actually produce insulin in these massive batches. But what we're focusing on and what I'm super, super excited about is actually the alternative protein space. So we are helping like, you know, uh, impossible foods kind of people. And one of the biggest problems there is the scaling to a commercial level. So it's really expensive. You might have heard of like the $20,000 hamburger. And so if we can help them to grow their cells better, it becomes less expensive and we can start to work as a whole industry to replace some of the, uh, the practices that are currently happening. Yeah. It, it's funny, like, um, funny is the wrong word, but it's interesting, I guess, that, like, not that long ago, like, two or so years ago, I saw there was a phone reviewer that I watch, and his normal, I guess, whatever, his phone reviews, but he reviewed the Impossible Burger. Mm. And he said, like, I remember him saying, like, if you don't think about it, if you just eat the hamburger, it's pretty good. But the minute you start thinking about it, you just get, you know, no. <laughs> like there's something in your brain that just sort of trips or whatever. Yeah. Or, like, like when, I, Go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. The, the, the concept is definitely the hardest part. Like if you think about it in relation to a hamburger, like you're saying, it does get yeah. a little weird and futuristic. But now, having said that, I mean, I can remember having a black bean burger, uh, I guess, 15 years ago. Mm. And, like, you had to have, you had to have the spicy one. Like, you couldn't have, they, they sold a plain one, but you wouldn't, unless you were raised on that, unless you didn't know what a burger tasted like, right, you wouldn't want to eat the plain one, <laughs> like, as a Wait. mammal. Too bad. You know, it was it was the the spicy one was really good, but the plain one was like, no, I can't, no, just no. <laughs> yeah, I imagine just like unflavored bean dip in patty form. It wasn't even if the texture was weird. The the aftertaste was that's what the spice did. The spice made you sort of forget. Mm. But yeah. It's what I'm saying is like it's amazing how far that technology, for lack of a better word, that's a, another example of English failing people. Um, but it's amazing that technology has moved along just in 15 years. Oh my yeah. goodness, the stuff they're doing now is nuts. So they're talking like you mentioned yeah. a concept change where like a black bean could be a burger. Well, now they're questioning things like are cow and pork and chicken even the best meat? Can we start to make water buffalo? in a lab and actually that's going to be the most delicious most most healthy meat and there's this other concept change they're talking about like you know getting some exotic species and be able to produce them in a lab so that anybody can have them like a wagyu beef kind of thing and so these conceptual things are going to shift pretty heavily i mean think about how disruptive i mean in a good way i guess but for the consumer think about how disruptive that would be for like the farmers and such Mm-hmm. But yeah, totally. No, as a consumer, that I, I can't wait to experience synthetic Wagyu beef that I can just pick up at the store. Yeah, 
it's super crazy the way they're doing it now. So I've seen them make they they're getting pretty good at lobster. Interestingly, that's one of the the most flavorful ones. But effectively now they're just taking biopsies from an animal, so it's the actual living cells, and then they they can just let them clone themselves over and over. So you end up with effectively the exact same meat. Wow. Yeah. So it's not even really like a synthetic. It's just uh, the cells are doing the exact same thing they would do, but with no entire animal attached to it. I feel like one of the privileges that I have from doing this podcast is it's like I get to see in this crystal ball. You know, I I get to see what the world's going to be like 30 years down the road or whatever before mm-hmm. anybody else because you're telling me this and this hasn't been released yet right right and it's going to go out in the world and but the crazy thing i'm just, just thinking about this last night the crazy thing is like i could say like you and i could have a conversation and there could be some 15 year old sitting around listening to this and being like that that's what i want to do I want to do plant-based meat or I want to, I want to cure Alzheimer's or I want to do this or that, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It's just amazing. Being a podcast interviewer, you, you probably get to talk to some really diverse experts in a lot of different fields and everybody has the things that they're excited about in their field. So you get to get like the gravy pot of all these different fields and see the coolest parts about them. Well, yeah, and I, I like talking to experts. I honestly do. And I like talking to historians. And But you know who's more interesting than experts in, in, like hmm. in all different fields? Is average normal people. Hmm. That's fascinating. Honestly. Believe it or not. <laughs> what what, do you th- what would you say is the difference in uh, what you might ask between like when you were interviewing an expert about their topic versus like just a normal person okay you have a brand right you don't think of it that way okay but you have a brand okay so you want to stay on that brand or you want to not venture off into some other thing right but like Mm -hmm. for example i had this you were talking about college entrepreneurs, right? College age entrepreneurs. I had this kid on my podcast about a year ago, maybe less, who sold donuts out of a truck. He ran a company where he sold donuts out of a truck in Iowa. And what he did was he drove all over the state selling donuts out of his truck, right? And he had some amazing takes just on the world that he could see out of that truck Hmm. that I don't think, I mean, I'm not saying you wouldn't have that same experience, but you're not driving around Iowa. Yeah. Right. Or like I had um, a bartender who'd been a bartender all over the world. Right. And he talked about this world that he lived in where he wasn't quite legit. Like in some of the places he worked, he wasn't technically supposed to be there. And he talked about that. And all over the world. Right? 
yeah yeah you must get some really solid takes on humanity and like mm -hmm. different experiences of just human beings when you're able to do those kind of things right or like how during the and I'm just, COVID is still happening right right but during when it was really going on right I would talk to people and then off air they would tell me their COVID story and a lot of those COVID stories are crazy oh my bet <laughs> and I'm not a tinfoil hat wearer like I'm not a conspiracy theorist but there's way more people that died of COVID than we mm. know about I'm telling you right now like when I say this all the time on my podcast, but when the two year old down the street is older than my father, that COVID death number is going to be a lot higher than it is today. I'm well, just saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can, I can definitely see it. Um, yeah. 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 Or, okay. I'll give you another example. When the election happened, I was the only person that I knew who thought, I'll bet you anything that Biden is going to have, like more people are going to vote for Trump than anybody's aware of mm. right now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like All a right. dark horse of accountability kind of thing. <laughs> but that's, and see, I look at this as an oral history of our current time. This cleverly disguised as a podcast. You know? That is a lovely way to put that. I really like that, actually. No, it's... I, I say all the time, my real audience isn't even born yet. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, You're going to laugh at us being excited about alternative meat when they can go and pick dinosaur meat off the grocery store like it's nothing. Yeah. Um. So you live in Houston. Yes, sir. So, so tell me about, so it's the third largest city in America at this point? I think it's the fourth now. Okay. It's still very big. Very big. You want to talk about Houston for a second, just on the, the worm's eye view? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so the wild thing is like almost one out of every 100 people in the United States lives in Houston. So that's Jesus just a mind boggling. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> you can drive from, from the top to the bottom and it takes you over an hour and you're still in Houston. Like... That's not with without traffic. Are we talking the city limits there, or are we talking metro? Metro, metro for okay. sure. Yeah, okay. there's right. quite a few suburbs, and it's super interesting how like the suburbs have their personalities, but also within the major metro area, uh, within the six ten loop, the the major uh, urban area, there is personalities man i mean i'm sure this is just like a big city thing but every like borough in new york has their own personality super similar thing here and i really really love it it's so diverse in houston when did it become because all my life it's been a big place and you know we're not that much further apart in age i wouldn't think but when did it become really really huge I don't know. Actually, some people that I was talking to kind of mentioned offhand that, that Houston had a, a pretty bad reputation for a while. And I don't know when that switch happened or what caused it to, but compared to like Austin or Dallas or even San Antonio, uh, Houston was not the place that people wanted to go in Texas. I mean, right offhand, having lived in Savannah and having lived in Tallahassee, 
Um, I would imagine it's crazy hot. Uh, it's probably humid. <laughs> so there's probably that, right? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I bike to work and it's probably about two and a half miles each way. And I've just kind of accepted the fact that I am going to be this stinky, sweaty boy that shows up every day. And uh, that's just a fact of biking the 15 minutes it takes to get here. I will be drenched. It's, it's, it's weird how much you just get used to being sticky. This is a fact of life down here. Yeah. Are, are you from anywhere? Are you, I mean, are you from somewhere else? Like, Yeah, I actually grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then went to Auburn, Alabama for college for about five years. So it's all along the south. Yeah, so, well, I don't think Albuquerque. I mean, it's it's south of somewhere, but it's not what I'd call. <laughs> not like the American South, south by any means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, like I've been to Albuquerque, and the thing that amazed me about it was how hot it was, mm. but also like how not humid it was. So I would imagine humidity is kind of a was a newer thing to you. Oh, it is. It's palpable. Like, uh, I, I almost feel like I'm not even overstating it when I say that it's kind of like walking around with a big wet blanket on top of you all the time. It's very just physically unpleasant. Uh, heavy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very unpleasant. <laughs> you can't move gracefully in Houston by any means. You just kind of slug around everywhere you go. No. But I remember it's getting- wonderful. Yeah, I remember Garrison Keeler had this thing about Houston where he said in in Houston you have to drive you have to go in even if you don't have air conditioner you have to have your windows up because if you have your windows down while you're driving people will look at you like what are you doing? Mhm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're basically sitting in a big metal box that's cooking you from the inside out. I mean, right. But that is something that people, I guess people up north don't, that have always been up north can't really understand is that there's a part of the day in the south, there's like a whole part of the day where you basically have to stay indoors unless you're, unless you like, you're working out, unless you're being paid to be outside, you literally have to stay indoors part of the day in the summer. Yeah, I'm still getting used to like some of the precautions that I have to take about just staying hydrated. You know, like you don't realize how much moisture you lose just existing outside here. And so you have to like consciously make sure that you're going to be okay through the day. Or like you have to wear like I'm looking at my closet right now and I have a bunch of long sleeve lightweight shirts that are designed for the sweat to come out. Huh. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, you see construction workers, they wear long sleeve shirts, so I imagine the same kind of principle. Yeah, well, maybe I can help you, because I've lived here, <laughs> I've lived in the South my whole life, so, yeah. Where, you, just, where are you? Atlanta. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what you want to do is you want to get yourself some lightweight, uh, some lightweight uh, long sleeve shirts, and that are designed for the sweat to come out. And the other thing you want to do is, okay, whatever Madison Avenue told you about shorts, Mm. I want you to forget that. Mm. (laughs) Okay. Shorts are for tourists. (laughs) Right? Okay. 
you want to keep your body as covered as possible and just forget that you're going to be cool. What you want to do is make the heat manageable. Huh. Yeah. That's adaptation stuff. Right. If I wear shorts, honest to God, sir, if I wear shorts, that's my way of saying I'm going to be indoors today. <laughs> huh. Yeah. That is so counterintuitive to everything that I would have thought. But I guess it makes sense, you know, because and this might be like totally just an Americanized concept. But, you know, people who are in extremely hot parts of the world, like the Middle East, you know, they, they seem like they cover up more than they're in shorts and T-shirts. And right. And it's, it's a cultural thing that manifested in, in their religion. But it's also sense. It's sensical. Right. Okay. Yeah, that is mind-blowing to me. And I own like a million pairs of shorts, and I've always thought that was the way to go. I'm going to have to try it out. No. Okay. The thing is, like, forget that you're going to be cool. What you mm-hmm. want to do is make the heat manageable. Mm, okay. 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 Right. little compromise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. But stay hydrated. Wear a hat. I don't go outside without a hat. You know. Sun protection? Well, sun protection, but also to keep the sweat. To it's to give the sweat somewhere to go. Other uh, than okay. all over myself. Because I'm I'm a northern European type dude. So <laughs> those Vikings, man, yeah, yeah, they didn't know what heat was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my my forebears did not they did not have to deal with heat. Now they traversed freezing fjords, I'm sure. Yeah, yes, they did. Um, <laughs> so glad I could help. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Maybe I don't have to be this stinky, sweaty boy anymore. No, you'll you'll smell, but you'll oh, be okay. a little more comfortable. Okay, we'll still compromise. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so where do you see Houston going as a? as a um, situation man it's it's pretty wild how everything is turning into uh like large-scale living so like these massive apartment complexes you see just going up around everywhere but they're also getting very outpriced to a lot of people so it's becoming so much more expensive to be urban and it's weird and i i use this term because um the concept gets across i mean i'm sure I, I don't mean to be like overstating my case or anything, but but it seems as though even my own neighborhood is getting really heavily gentrified because rents are going growing up. You know, people my age can't afford houses anymore. It's really, really expensive if anybody wants to live alone. Um, and more and more people in my peer group are having to look outwards towards the suburbs and, you know, face the commutes and the, the cost of associated driving and it's weird to feel yourself kind of being pushed out by people who are coming in and having more money and we're seeing it a lot um that a lot of my friends will try to buy homes and get oversold um outbid sorry by like 25 percent on people who aren't even in person to see the house it is it's so weird but there is a lot of money in flowing so maybe that'll do some good for the city i wonder honestly i I think you're right. And a lot of people 
again, like we're basically for the purposes of this cute little podcast here. I mean, we're essentially the same age, you know, like I mm-hmm. said, this is an oral history of our time. So, you know, whatever, but that's a common problem all over the country. That's a really common problem. Yeah. And I wonder honestly if we did it wrong. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I don't know if you heard recently about, um, I forget whether it's like black rock or black stone where they are buying up entire neighborhoods for well over asking price. And then since they essentially own all the property in one given area, they can raise the rent of everything and just push up their value sky high because they have the capital to do so. And nothing's stopping them from buying single family homes and effectively taking the supply away from, from anybody who's not a large corporation. Well, and I've said this before on my podcast, and I'm going to say it again. And, but before the pandemic, now check this out. Before the pandemic, it was cheaper to rent a house, an entire house, than it was to rent a one-bedroom apartment. Wow. In my city. And... That is wild. I, I had to have a homelessness lawyer on my podcast to understand why that is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to have to go back and check out that episode because that sounds super interesting. Yeah. Shout out to Cheryl Ring. It's it's called Cheryl Ring Esquire on Homelessness. I had to go through the back catalog for something else last night. but <laughs> Yeah. Shout out. That. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Cheryl Ring. But, yeah, this is a common situation all over the country. It's not just Houston. Mm. Um, I wonder, honestly, what I was saying earlier was a second ago was, um, so I have this little theory that the show friends like Rachel Ross, Phoebe, I have this little theory that the show friends kind of did a lot of damage to two, to two different generations because like we saw this apartment and we were like, that's the life I want. Right. Right. Whereas meanwhile, I had a buddy whose mom and dad used to build houses for a living. Right. Used to be in construction. And his whole thought was, man, don't live in an apartment because you're just you're just giving that rent money to somebody else. What you want to do is so he was way ahead of the curve. Like he was out there living with his parents and saving up that, you know, that money and buying a house. He was way ahead of the curve looking back. You know, honestly. Yeah. That yeah. is super, super interesting because I, I imagine that a lot of people watching Friends to keep going with that, you know, they see that kind of apartment living and they see the community of it, you know, and then when you start to get into your own home, usually you have your nuclear family that you're associating with a lot more, maybe some neighbors, but but it's a lot more independent. And so, you know, watching friends the thing i loved anyways when i watched friends with this was that they all lived so dang close together and it was like your family unit you know it's just a communal yeah. little thing and i super wanted that that's what i had yeah. wanted for all time yeah so you were a, okay you glazed over it earlier but you were a podcaster back in the day yeah yeah i had a couple different i just i really 
love conversations like this and I really love the back and forth that comes with talking to somebody about the things they know. So I did uh, several interview series. One of them was a blog where I introduced some of the science that's going on here in Houston and made that relatable. One of them was for the city of Houston and that was a video series. Um, but then eventually I branched into my own podcast called Incorporating Science. And that was just me talking to like investors and CEOs and stuff that were in the, the bioscience fields and just kind of having some, some totally unscripted, almost no notes conversations about whatever it is that they happen to be doing. But I only wow. got like eight episodes and then COVID happened. So I kind of gave it up. So, okay, you were before COVID. You, you did your podcast before COVID. Yeah, yeah. Huh. 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 That's how, how I was using yeah. Zencast because I love this program. Yeah, it's getting better. Zencaster. It's getting a lot better. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. Uh, if I were you, I'd use class. If you're getting back into it, if I were you, I'd use classic Zencaster, okay. not um, the other one because it doesn't, uh, the other one isn't stable. Hmm. And this is getting more stable, but it's still not, you know, wonderful. <laughs> few hiccups uh, yeah yeah but they're getting fewer and further between honestly but, okay yeah I'll take it yeah but yeah I it mean, was a, a lot of fun when I was doing it I didn't get very far in it but I really enjoyed the interview process and the conversation process and it's just mm -hmm. fun yeah well I again I'm going to pitch interviewing regular people. No, no. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I will say that I, I think my podcasts fall into two distinct categories. One is more informational, so like scientific and entrepreneurship. But I really, really love humanistic ones. Like I really love the Moth podcast because it's just people telling their stories and you can hear the emotion and you can hear the delivery nuances that make it so personal. But those kind of things that just are a proxy for human connection. Those things are phenomenal. And I imagine that that's a lot of what you get when you're talking to normal people. You also get ahead of the curve. Like you get, like you understand like, oh, hey, like this, this pandemic or the, the shutdown from the pandemic really devastated a lot of people mm -hmm. financially, emotionally, uh, or whatever. And, more so, I would say, in the minds of a lot of people, than the actual disease itself was the shutdown. Mm. Oh, Whether, it was alienating. What'd you say? I said it was so such an alienating, isolating experience. Right. I, and 2020, I would not have known this had I not talked to so many folks. But 2020 was the year that a whole lot of people Maybe nobody on this conversation, but a lot of people honestly thought for the very first time, oh, the internet is not a toy. It is a tool. Okay. Mm -hmm. And a whole lot of people were caught flat-footed because they did not live in a place where the whole town could, where every child in the town could be going to school virtually at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. 
um, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Thing, you know, right. And also, like, the thing is, like, like, you know, I have a master's degree, you have a PhD, you're getting a PhD, so, like, I can read studies about COVID. I can read the abstract about the COVID study and put it in plain language, where maybe if you're a mechanic, you might not think you have the training to do that, right? Mm-hmm. If you even think COVID is real, you might not have the training to, or even the know-how to where to go to read the COVID study. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We're really coming to see how much of a connective backbone and how much of a, of a, a facet of change in our own lives, as far as accessing information, the internet can really be. And so you, you know, you, for your example of the mechanic, like you are now a mechanic with access to everything so you can use that as a tool to to have like an informed opinion outside of your expertise and you're not boxed in at all and you can still connect and get uh different perspectives and that is so massive and it you're like you're saying it has never really been as practical and as in our faces as this pandemic yeah and then okay so this is going to lead to another debate that we're going to have as a culture or that we should have as a culture, not just as a nation, but as an English speaking, or I guess even whatever Spanish or French or whatever, just as a human culture, do you really want to have a private company be the purveyor of all of earth's knowledge? Mm -hmm. Is this something you want? Mm -hmm. I'm not judging it one way or the other. I'm saying that it's happening and that it's become apparent to me that people who work there, somebody who works there, be it, you know, some person or be it the CEO or whoever has an agenda about certain issues Mm -hmm. or certain things. And then when you delve into it and you discover, well, the knowledge is 10 years old, the knowledge you can Google most of the time is 10 years old. Mm hmm. Okay. Now think about that as an Alzheimer's researcher or whatever, how far, you know, how bad is, is how different was the Alzheimer's research 10 years ago than it is now? Fundamentally. Yeah. Just, you know, we didn't even have the same tools. Right. So if I'm somebody and I've got a person in my family that suddenly can't dress themselves or whatever, and I'm Googling symptoms of Alzheimer's or whatever, those symptoms are probably 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Or the treatment be outdated. Yeah, just I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there. I don't remember if this was on that really cool Netflix documentary about uh, uh, social media and stuff, or if I heard this in a podcast. But there, the the business practices that actually kind of limit data and accessibility are really really crazy. Like when there were certain South American countries that were coming preloaded with Facebook stuff. And if you were going through those channels, those Facebook channels, then you weren't being charged for data, which is fundamentally only giving people of a lower economic class one means of access to information through the Facebook or the WhatsApp or things that are being controlled by one country. And that is how it's all going to end up being if we if we start if we don't um, keep the Internet open. Or you, you mentioned Facebook, 
So, um, I have a Facebook group. It, you know, I would say that I have less than a third of the people in my group regularly see any of the posts, right? Mm-hmm. So, my question is, like, Facebook has a whole lot of data. I, I don't know how many people are aware, but Facebook has a whole lot of data about you. Mm-hmm. That's what they have to sell when they go out of business, mm-hmm. right? Now, think about this. I was thinking about this actually today. The only, like, I guarantee you the average American or the average Western European or whatever, right? Thanks of Facebook is the way to how to look at my cousin or how to look at my college buddy or, or whatever, blah, blah. They don't really understand that it might not seem useful to you, but it has a lot of your data. And so mm-hmm. by you electing to leave it, right, there goes Facebook's cash cow, right? Mm-hmm. So sooner or later... Facebook's going to fail, I think, sooner than later. And we haven't had the conversation about how is that going to work? Who's going to step in and make sure that data doesn't get sold to the Chinese or the Russians or the North Koreans or whoever? (laughs) Yeah, When you start to have that much data, it is so insane how much of a pattern you can give to every single human being you know effectively what they're going to be doing at every minute of every day what's going to gauge their interests what they're probably going to be seeing as they're on their commute to work and if you have all of these inputs it's not hard to change their perspective because you have access to what they're seeing you have access to what is drawing their attention And you can start to subtly kind of malform things in your direction, as we're seeing a lot with political schemes. Or even like I had an IT person. So I had an IT person on my show twice. Actually, more than twice, but twice made the Internet. Um, That was more my fault than his. But anyway, um, (laughs) that was a technological situation that had nothing to do with content. Mm. But... He said something that ought to terrify every thinking human on the planet, right? He Mm. said that there are ad agencies out there that are running tests where they intentionally don't put things on Facebook ads. And they're finding it makes no difference in sales. Really? Yes. So is it something more subtle than the ad? Because the ad is right up in your face. Is it something more in the background that they're still getting value from? So the thought is that there's a lot of dead people. There's a lot of, um, I don't want to say like dead people on Facebook, but there's a lot of accounts that are no longer active. Mm. Right. And the thought is that, There's another thought running around that a lot of people who can't afford to buy that new uh, suit or the new car or whatever live in full houses. The house is already full. So I don't, you know, it's kind of like, why do I need a new piece of furniture if I have to move out a piece of furniture for that one? Mm -hmm. Right. Kind of thing. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. I think some of the most effective marketing that works on me is when it solves a problem that I, I didn't even realize was a problem, but now that I see it, I kind of want it. Like there's a lot of gadgets that I see where I'm like, oh yeah, that would simplify a small part of my life or make it more interesting. And I've never wanted this product before, but I think I'll probably get it. The, the, the most effective ad, type of ad out there was the podcast ad. Huh. And the reason why is think about it, right? You're not going to change up the podcast. Oh, how bad does a podcast have to be? Have to be, or like maybe if you got Joe Rogan in the, on the on the phone or whatever, but you got your little your little kids in the car, right? So you don't want, you know, cursing or whatever with your little five year old in the car, right? Right. But how bad does the podcast have to be? For you to be like, nope, I want to listen to something. I'm going to stop what I'm doing with this car and change out the podcast. Mm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> You're getting consistent, repetitive delivery of the same ad to probably a profile of people that you already found are receptive to it. A lot of the podcasts that I listen to have like the same five companies delivering the ads. And I don't know if that's just like a podcast thing in general. Like I hear me undies all the time. Or whatever the one that helps you build the websites. Now, why 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 do you think it is that these specific companies are so drawn to podcasts as a format? Well, I understand. Well, is that a question or are you asking? Yeah, totally a question. I don't know the answer at all. Okay, I understand. It's my understanding that most podcasts or most audiences are male, huh. are overwhelmingly male. Um, however, like. The true crime podcasts is, is are like listened to by a lot of by a lot of women. That's what I understand. Um, my own guess is that as far as the Wix uh, ads, my own That's guess the- is that a lot of tech savvy people or people that don't know they're tech savvy but are right because I think that's a person too, somebody who doesn't know they're tech savvy but is. But a lot of tech-savvy people listen to podcasts in general because why? Because what are you listening to it on? A phone. Mm -hmm. Right? If you're using the phone – I've got news for you, Alec. If you're using this phone to do something other than to call somebody or text somebody, you're probably pretty tech-savvy. You know? Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, you at least have enough familiarity with like the user experience as it relates to a mobile phone to figure out how other processes work. Exactly. Or something I like to say is like, just as a historian, something I like to think about is what do you know that your great grandfather didn't have to care about? Like what's part of your day that your great grandfather never had to know? Yeah, that is cool. Right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, there's probably some major differences. Like a major one that I can think of is probably like where to source your water for a lot of people that may come from more rural areas. Like their great-grandfathers might have had to know a lot more about how to build a well, whereas I have absolutely no idea on that kind of stuff. Right? Or like I had a podcast that I'm going to actually release today about where this guy talks about 
people don't know where food comes from. Like well-meaning, intelligent people don't know where food comes from. Yeah. The whole, yeah, the entire infrastructure system, the delivery system, like of food on a major scale like that is mind-boggling. Like even mm-hmm. when I go fly, and you know how you when you're way up in the air and you see like distinctive patterns of circles all along the ground where crops and stuff, those are everywhere and they're huge. And I can't even fathom the scale of grocery store food delivery or how that process works. Yeah. No. <laughs> No, it's uh, and during the pandemic, I had to become a little bit familiar with that, at least from a consumer standpoint. But it, I, I heard somewhere that my state, um, chances are, if you're east of the Mississippi, my state basically raised your egg. Wow, pretty, pretty much. Yeah, that's so crazy. Yeah, and there's a lot of states that are far away from Georgia that are east of the Mississippi. Yeah, just, just saying. getting an egg from the, the bottom right of the country all the way up to the top left in Oregon up there. I mean, that that is a long distance to travel well, for one. egg. You're going to the you're going from the bottom right to the top right. Mm. You're, you're oh, going... I see. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Still. So, yeah. But apparently, like there were places, there were whole big places in this country for a while there that had no eggs, and this was why. Huh. This was partly why, yeah. Yeah, that is super interesting, that the, like, accessibility to groceries is geographic. Now I super take for granted that I can just get eggs at any point in time. Well, right. I mean, you think about how... So, like, what was the ingredient? There's some... I can't remember now. There's some ingredient in Mexican cooking that is in modern Mexican cooking today, but isn't actually Mexican. It came from their interaction with other groups of folks. I'm trying to remember what it is, but it's so, I I can't remember. (laughs) I had to bust that out of RAM. That is crazy. So it was just something that wasn't native, but became so ingrained in the culture that now we just like think of it as Mexican. Well, it was it wasn't native, but it was it was very much um, like they liked it, so they made it native. They they figured out how to do it there. Wow! Right, <laughs> right. And I I can't. I wish I could totally confidently remember what the ingredient was because as soon as I heard it, I was like, "You've got to be kidding me." Seriously? That's that's insane. I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> Before we lose, I had one question on something you said. You said that the majority of podcast uh, audiences were men, and that is super interesting to me. Do you have any insight why? Insight. insight. I know from being an interviewer, I know from interviewing people, believe it or not, um, men have more free time that they don't even realize is free time. Like when I interview women, um, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but when I interview women, they have a lot less free time than men because even now, even still today, they do a lot of the child rearing. They do a lot of the cooking. They do a lot of this. They do a lot of that. Right. 
that yeah. men have. And even if a man is like super busy, you can be busy and have your ears into other stuff, right? Yeah. Whereas like if you're with the child, if you're with a young kid, you have to keep an ear out. Yeah. Right? Yes. Pretty important. Your attention's focused, I would imagine. Yeah. And that's just super anecdotally as a podcaster. That, that, I've is noticed. that is What's crazy. Um, I, so I, um, this may be TMI, but I'm, I'm sterilized like by surgery. And so like the kid thing was never, ever like a concept in my mind. And so hearing that is something that I never even would have pieced together, but it does make a lot of sense. And like you, th you would think, I mean, cause you would think with like a lot of people, like people today, you would think that they're, egalitarian or whatever and i'm not even saying it's, it's conscious like i'm not even saying it's a conscious thing i'm just saying like in a lot of families it just seems to me as a podcaster somebody who interviews people mm -hmm. that men have a lot more available free time than women i've just noticed hmm yeah that's like some uh, some Freakonomics level kind of stuff, you know, these hidden patterns that have big implications or unexpected implications. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't have noticed that had I not been a podcaster talking to folks. Yeah. And what's interesting is it cuts across. Like, so another thing I've noticed as a podcaster is almost nobody can plan out more than three days in advance. Mm -hmm. And that goes from, you know... Um, somebody who's the top of his field to somebody who's not like it cuts across everything socioeconomics job you name it almost no person that I've talked to seems to have the ability because one person actually like okay well I'm going to do we're going to do something on July the, the whatever and it was not like barely even June and I was like wow okay that person has their ducks in a row. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but I've noticed that. Um, yeah. But, hmm. Yeah, you also mentioned that, um, like, and this is something that, of course, anecdotally that I've noticed in my friends and, and family, that a lot of the subject matter is a big disparity between men and women. So I noticed that a lot of women tend to like more of the true crime stuff. Or there's some really great podcasts like uh, Call Her Daddy is one that I like. I think it's it was pretty funny. And uh, there's a really great one called Guys, We, and the F Word. Um, but they are touching on like the feminine experience. There's one that's really great called The Cut that I didn't even realize was like a woman's magazine until I've listened to like 20 episodes. But there are there do seem to be some broad sweeping categories that women podcasters are starting to get into. And that's not to say that there aren't other ones like Manu Samarodi, shout out to her. She's phenomenal. And she covers a lot of like tech news and stuff. Um, but there do seem to be some really general categories for, for female podcasters in today. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a growing uh, thing. I, I think one of the things I think that, that happened was maybe, maybe the man. So men, um, they take their phone, they, you know, we, we tend to take our phone and we take it out in the world more and we have pockets like men have pockets and a lot of women. 
don't. Mm-hmm. So like a woman puts her purse, puts the phone in her purse, whereas I'm going to put my phone in my pants. So the phone automatically is more accessible to me, mm-hmm. just automatically. So I'm I'm maybe more playing with it, like with a with a free hand or something, right? So mm-hmm. I think that was the initial thing, just anecdotally. But also like, um, I, you know, what were the first podcasts? Okay, they were like history podcasts. They're like. Actually, I think uh, Dan Carlin was one of the first podcasts oh, out there. Really? He has some great ones. I didn't know he was that old, or that the podcast that old. He's been podcasting since two thousand and five. Holy cow! Yeah, I didn't even okay. As a podcaster, and I'm I'm in the top ten percent in the world. I wasn't when I graduated university. I wasn't even aware of what a podcast was. I don't think I heard the term. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what I was saying was so men also traditionally work more outside the home. So, you know, you're occupying your time when you're out. There's a lot, believe it or not, if you really think about it, there's a lot of free time that you don't even realize that you have. Mm. Especially if you're an urban person who sits on a train or a bus or an Uber. Like, there's a lot of free time that you don't even realize that you have. Right? Yeah. Or even, like, those times when you are doing something else, but it's listening time, like cooking or going to the gym or cleaning. Whereas, like I was saying, like, if you're at home and you're always thinking, well, I got to I gotta watch out for the kid or I got to watch out for, you know, I got to listen out for this or I got to listen out for that or I got to, you know wait for this and that to happen. So I got to have at least one ear open. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's super interesting. I'd never thought about any of that before. Yeah. That's why they say, like, they. I, I was laughing about it earlier on a podcast. I don't know if I released it yet or not, but uh, the guy said that the 45 minutes is the optimal podcast length, and we both laughed about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this podcast right now is 132, and I'm just going to make a little cut on it. <laughs> It'll probably be in the 140s by the time we're done. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. No. Well, um, one of my favorite things about podcasts as a medium and that you're starting to see really in the Zoomer generation is that it allows you so much more uh access to human experience and that builds a lot of empathy and because you're able to see other people's perspectives and understand their lifestyles more and like having that in your pocket and having it be about subjects that you care about and so you're going to pay more attention to them like i think it does breed more empathy in the younger generation and it's phenomenal to see i'll tell you one thing that as a podcaster, as somebody who talks to folks all over the planet, um, I find myself a lot less judgmental than I was in 2019. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, look, we're all just going through life with incomplete information. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's made me think all the time. Why do I think that? Right? Why do I think what I think? Because I talked to this other guy who seems like a reasonable person. He's not what I'd call crazy, 
right? Mm-hmm. And he thinks, like I think X and he thinks Y, and X and Y are totally different. And why does he think that? Well, he thinks that because blah, blah, blah. And I think this because yada, yada, right? Mm-hmm. But see, in his world, that's totally right, you know? Yeah, these, these, these small concepts that you almost have to hear verbalized to you, like, oh, experience builds perspective. Like these kind of things, you, you, they maybe aren't as inherent as we think they are. You know, you kind of have to hear it once. That's, this is literally exactly what I wrote that little book on. So there were so many of those kind of concepts that I had to learn by experience. I had to almost have them verbalized before I could encompass them. And like, I feel like getting exposed to those at an earlier age just helps you develop so much quicker and so much smoother and at a critical time in the development of a human being. I think so. And I think in the, I mean, in the, in the olden times of, you know, even in the 2010s, I mean, or 2000s, you know, your, your friend experiences were basically limited to where you were, but also like your knowledge of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. So. So I've got a buddy who lives in Indonesia. And we talk fairly regular, like we talk fairly all the time. So he's given me his eye view of Indonesia and I'm like I'm seeing climate change up close and personal, but across the planet. But mm. to the point where it's undeniable, like you can't. You literally cannot l- live where he lives and deny that this is going on it Mm -hmm. would be it'd be like impossible for you to be sane and deny that it's happening right whereas i live kind of in the in the piedmont region so we're a little more sheltered from the rising levels of the ocean and it's hotter than it used to be for sure but it's also colder than it used to be so you (laughs) you know you can you can go either way on that right yeah, man, I saw something crazy about uh, I think it might have been Seattle that in the past hundred years, Seattle has only gone above 100 degrees three times, but they're expected to go over 100 degrees three times in the next week. So the rate and the extremities of changes now are just so unfathomably uncharacteristic for the globe. Yeah. Odd. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Like. Like, I'm a Jets fan. I'm a Winnipeg Jets fan. So I keep up with the Winnipeg media. And they're going through a, a serious heat wave up there. Like, a, a really bad heat wave. And they just don't. I'm, like, literally helping people. Like, what I, what I just told you, I was telling that to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like, on Twitter, like, don't, don't wear shorts. <laughs> shorts are for tourists. <laughs> Yeah, that is an under underappreciated fact right there that I'm sure that a lot of people don't feel. I uh, don't know. So appreciate yeah. you for that. I mean, you're not going to be comfortable, but you're not going to be comfortable in anything. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I uh, people mention how, you know, like you were saying, the colders get colder too. And so, you know, especially as it was called global warming in the beginning, um, there was that a was lot. A mistake. Oh, that was such a conceptual mistake. But how could you have, you know, preconceived that people would be so against it? 
but it's it's the rate and the extremities that are just so terrifying yeah and i mean you can see like if you think about it you can see clues in the construction like when you're in a hotel in montreal and and there is no air conditioning in this hotel that's a that's a clue right that you're in this nice hotel in montreal and there is no air conditioning wow yeah right yeah i mean we're already adapting our behaviors to suit a changing world that's crazy but seriously i i distinctly remember like i was i was on vacation in montreal once and it was super hot and there was no air conditioning and i was like they wouldn't have done that Mm -hmm. on purpose right yeah (laughs) i mean well that's you know a historian has to think about the built environment yeah you know yeah i mean you're uh, a building essentially is like an, a, a time stamp of how people were behaving and what they thought about during those periods and it's crazy now that even basic resources are different and they're reflected in our architecture yeah and here's another little fun fact for you so on one level in your mind you're always 28 the world mm-hmm. is as it was when you were 28 until something changes. Mm-hmm. So on one level, emotionally, you're always 28. <laughs> no matter what goes on, unless you're literally forced to change. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, and- man, that that is that clicks a button, especially and this is pretty unrelated, but um, to to that point, I had a, a friend who is just getting back on the dating scene and he's about 40, and the last time he was on the dating scene, he was in his mid-20s. And so conceptually, he is still in his mid-20s and behaving like it, and so something had to change in his world for his behavior to be shaken up mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. as a dater, he has been 22 since, you know, for the 18 years. Right, but also think about, I mean, what's really wild is like when you watch but you go back and you watch a movie from like 20 years ago mm-hmm. and you think about your world you live in now and you're like, wow. Okay. This is different. This is a different world now. Right. Especially if that movie was made about that time specifically, like, and where you really see it is like with a low budget movie because they have to go with the built environment. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like that movie, um, there's a movie Primer. Primer is this sort of fascinating look at 2001 in ways that they never intended. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a fascinating look at 2001 in ways those people never intended. It's just so fascinating. Yeah. That like, is really- what's up? That is really cool. No. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you another story uh, off air about that really drove that home. But um, did you have any um, anything else you wanted to say before we uh, wrap up? I don't think so. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun, actually. Thank you so much for host for having me. You're more than welcome to come back any any time. Um, 
All right, Alec, if you will be so kind as to email me whatever link you want me to throw in the description, uh, I have to put up at least one more podcast before I get to yours. Mm-hmm. But that'll happen pretty soon because I pray at the Church of Joe Rogan podcast editing, mm. <laughs> which is just if something happened, you cut it. Beyond that, leave it. Just yeah. Leave it. All right, everybody, as always, uh, this has been Ben Kitchings, and I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. And Alec, if you'll hold on the line while this downloads, I'd appreciate it.